It's time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, on CFAX 1070. Joined, as we usually are, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Uh, lately, he has been hearing, or actually you've been hearing him more often than you've been hearing me, because I haven't gone the last couple of weeks. Michael, how were things? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, feeling just a little bit better knowing that you're not, uh, you know, lounging on a local beach with your feet up or something. I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, feeling that uh, kinship that comes from having other people in the office. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's good to be back. What is on the docket for you and I today? Uh, well, I think the first case that's worth uh, talking about uh, is one that we mentioned when it was just uh, originally filed. Um, and it's a case uh, that was started by two fathers over in uh, Vancouver uh, who, have, uh, who are immunocompromised and who have uh, other family members who have uh, uh, medic- underlying medical conditions, including uh, one of the uh, uh, father's uh, wives has uh, cancer. Yes. Uh, and uh, they uh, each have uh, children in elementary uh, school and high school, uh, and they were bringing a, a court challenge seeking an injunction uh, to uh, require additional protective measures to be put in place for schools uh, before they would be permitted to reopen. Uh, both fathers wanted their children to be able to go to school. That was their preference. Uh, but uh, they wanted uh, an order which would prevent the schools from opening without requiring things like either mandatory use of masks, including in classrooms, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, mandatory requirements for social distancing so that the children weren't uh, put too, too close to one another without masks on. Yeah. And so this was their application um, seeking a, an interim injunction uh, asking that uh, those things be required. Uh, and they were not successful in obtaining the, uh, the interim injunction. Uh, and their challenges with that, the reason the judge wasn't prepared to uh, grant them that uh, kind of an injunction, uh, really were in two categories. One issue that the judge identified was that the fathers hadn't uh, identified the particular uh, government decision which they were seeking to judicially review. Uh, the concept that uh, would underlie these sort of an applic- this sort of application would be uh, a request for a judge to review a government decision uh, on a standard of reasonableness uh, to determine uh, whether uh, that decision would have been a reasonable one. What are the standards uh, of review right now? Because I remember it was Dunsmuir got rid of patent unreasonableness, and wasn't there a Lavialov or some other case that came out recently? Or Yeah, we, we no. sort of narrowed it down to the concept of reasonableness. Okay. And the, the idea there is really this. When um, somebody is going to court asking to review a government, like an administrative decision of any kind, uh, the uh, judge is not asking themselves, do I agree with the decision or would I have made this decision? Uh, They're asking themselves, is this decision a reasonable decision? As in, could a reasonable decision maker on the evidence before them have come to this conclusion, even if I don't agree with it? So the idea there is to have a fair bit of deference, right? We, we don't yeah. want to have judges having to decide every administrative issue about, uh, you know, should they have given you a driver's license or what about that building permit? Is it a good or bad idea? Or, yeah. you know, do you like the design of that building? Whatever it might be. But you do need to have some threshold uh, if, you, if there's a decision made which is a, an unreasonable one or a decision which just genuinely goes to the 
sort of jurisdiction to make the decision at all, um, then you could have a a court can decide to overturn it, right? Um, And so that the the judge was saying here look these fathers well well intentioned haven't pointed me to well what exactly is the decision you're looking to overturn you, you want masks you want the children to be safe but you haven't identified the particular decision you want to uh, have overturned okay and then the other problem that the judge identified with the application um is that um the fathers were relying on media reports about, for example, outbreaks and exposures in schools. Mm-hmm. And the judge said, look, I just can't rely upon media reports. There needs to be some evidence before me about those things such that that can be rationally examined. Okay. And there would be. I mean, on the lower mainland, I just looked quickly, like in Vancouver Coastal Health, there have been 30 schools that have had uh, identified uh, exposures. Uh, Fraser Health, uh, there were 30 more. So we've been lucky in Vancouver Island, but there are just you know, sort of quick examination of the official website, 60 schools have had uh, students who have uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and therefore may have exposed others. But that evidence wasn't properly before the judge. Okay. And so as a result of not identifying the particular uh, decision and not properly having before the judge uh, that evidence about, you know, what is the risk and, you know, how many schools have had these things. Uh, the two dads were not successful. A um, couple of interesting other things about the decision. One, at the end of it, the judge concluded that even though the fathers were not successful, he wasn't going to order that they pay costs on the basis that they uh, both genuinely thought this was in the public interest, trying to keep their families and children safe. Yes. Uh, the other thing I must say I smiled about as I read the uh, uh, read the decision was it was delivered by video conference, <laughs> so everyone was nicely socially distant at least in the BC Supreme Court when the decision was made. Uh, the same isn't necessarily so uh, for the kids in school. Indeed, and of course, a Zoom litigation. I guess I never really thought about the implications of Zoom litigation on costs, but I suppose there would be savings, wouldn't there be? Yeah, I mean, there'd be some actual savings and efficiency. That's actually been an interesting thing from a uh, sort of an on-the-ground perspective, as I've sort of watched how the courts have uh, evolved and dealt with uh, the need to keep people safe. Some of the practices which we in the profession and the courts have uh, adopted um, are things which I think are just generally good ideas and are making the system more efficient. Like, for example... Um, most applic- most uh, or many sentencings now in criminal matters are dealt with uh, using uh, telephone or MS teams. That mm. works very, effect- very effectively. Uh, many more things are now being dealt with uh, by uh, procedural applications are being dealt with by uh, email rather than having people show up in person uh, for everything, for tasks like fixing trial dates or entering uh, not guilty pleas or you know other things which are genuinely administrative. Um, they've also, in the criminal sphere, uh, adopted a process to deal with uh, disclosure of uh, evidence to the accused uh, electronically. All of these things, uh, I think, um, are uh, advancements in terms of the efficiency of the whole process. Yes. Um, the Court of Appeal is now doing um, all of its hearings by Zoom. They've got a full schedule going on, just all the oral submissions are by Zoom. And so. Uh, you know, if there's anything positive to come out of this pandemic, it, it may have been uh, a bit of a nudge uh, to uh, encourage uh, adoption of uh, practices that uh, I suspect will uh, continue because uh, they just are more efficient and 
uh, save time in addition to keeping people safe. So Very well. there is some positive things that have happened in the justice system. Absolutely. Speaking of keeping people safe and electronic advancements, you and I have discussed a number of times how British Columbia's laws deal with the problem of distracted driving with respect to electronic devices, what it means to hold a device in a way it can be used. And there's another story that we've been discussing here regarding the wearing of earbuds in one's ears, even though the phone to which the earbuds were attached apparently had a dead battery what's the story here yeah i mean the, the underlying story here is that the the motor vehicle act provisions that are designed to prevent people from distracting themselves with electronic devices are drafted in an extremely broad way uh, they would capture all manner of things and for example one of the things that's prohibited is to use an electronic device, and then there's a definition of what using an electronic device could include. It would include holding the device in a position in which it may be used, operating one of the device's functions, communicating orally by means of the device, or taking another action set out in the legislation with respect to the electronic device. Mm -hmm. Now, this particular decision was an appeal from a conviction for a man who had earbuds in that were plugged into an iPhone, which was secured properly, not being handled, uh, and also just happened to have a dead battery. Now, previous decision concluded that dead battery doesn't matter, it's still an electronic device. And so here what happened is that the judicial justice who heard the original trial, uh, and this was upheld on appeal to the B.C. Supreme Court now, found that the earbuds in the ear were part of the device because they were attached with a cord and Having the device in your ears, the earbuds, amounted to holding the device in your ears. Fascinating. And therefore convicted the man. And so, um, I mean, there are a few things that come out of that. First of all, it's be extremely careful if you're you know, doing anything like that. You may subject yourself to a conviction that can lead to a driving prohibition. Yes. Um, and it also raises some interesting issues that are sort of contemporary ones in terms of how judges are to approach the interpretation of statutes like this, right? You know, so what is a judge to do with, you know, language like that, holding the device in a position in which it may be used, right? And yes. they, they come to the conclusion that you're holding it in your ears. Hmm. Well, it actually calls to mind for me sort of what you've probably seen on television, the ongoing confirmation hearings with respect to President Trump's uh, Supreme U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, nominee, yes, um, and uh, her uh, method of statutory interpretation, which is based on uh, uh, a, um, a, it's called originalism. Mm, that actually yes. came from uh, Justice Scalia, who's sort of the most famous uh, proponent of that. And the way he and she uh, approach legislation uh, is referred to either as textualism or uh, the original intent. And the idea there would be, for example, if you were called upon if they were called upon to determine, you know, what does uh, some constitutional uh, provision mean, like let's say you've got something that prohibits uh, uh, discrimination, for example, yes, they would ask themselves, what would that have been? In, what would have been intended in the 1800s when that was adopted? Hmm. And so, for example, if you ask the current nominee uh, or the late Justice Scalia, you know, would the U.S. Constitution, for example, prohibit uh, discrimination based on race? Well, the likely response you would get would be something along the lines of, well, no, uh, slavery was legal, uh, and uh, therefore the intent of the provision uh, implemented at the time when that was legal could not have been to prohibit discrimination based on race. Hmm. 
right? And it would not uh, develop or evolve in, in any way. Um, and so um, I must say that's a bit of a, a head-scratcher from my perspective that that's how you would approach things. But, you know, it's a challenging thing and a, and a good question for people. When you're a, a judge faced with language like that, what does it mean to hold a device in a position in which it may be used? How should that be interpreted? Sort of what should the approach be there? Um, ordinarily, the approach would be some effort at trying to discern what the purpose or intent of that wording would be, right? And the judge here on the appeal tried to do that. Uh, but uh, I suppose what it points out is that uh, even though perhaps the Scalia or the current Scalia approach of originalism and textualism may take that to an absolute absurd level, um, ultimately it's for the legislature to draft these things uh, in an appropriate way, yes. right? It's, it's not really the judge's fault that the uh, language used in this section here is so extremely broad so as to capture things which I think most people would agree aren't dangerous. Like, sir, well, what is the danger posed by the man with the earbuds in on a dead iPhone? He yeah. apparently kept them in to block out traffic noise. Hmm. You know, what, what is the danger posed here? Uh, but, you know, those, those are decisions which need to be made uh, essentially by the legislature, right? It's, sort yes. of a, it's not the judge's fault that the Motor Vehicle Act is drafted in a way that uh, appears to capture behavior that uh, doesn't on the face of it look like really what we would have thought of as dangerous. Um, and so, um, you know, sort of how much uh, a judge is prepared to do in terms of uh, uh, using language that may be ambiguous to reach a particular result um, is a, a, a live issue, right? And you're seeing that play out now uh, in the U.S. context in terms of, you know, how uh, is it appropriate to interpret their constitution by looking at, uh, you know, what uh, a bunch of uh, white guys would have thought uh, in the 1800s. Indeed. Going back to this case involving the earbuds, is the fact that they were wired earbuds, is that material to the case? I.e., if it had been wireless earbuds, would the justice have reached the same decision? I had the same thought when I looked at this thing, because the, the judge, uh, the original judge and this judge on the appeal made reference to the fact that the electronic device was connected by a wire yes. uh, to the earbuds. But I think you'd have another potential problem if you had wireless earbuds. And the potential problem with the wireless earbuds um, is that the definition of electronic device is extremely broad. Mm. Um, and the definition of electronic device would uh, likely capture um, a uh, wireless earbud uh, because the wireless earbud would itself uh, constitute an electronic device. I think the definition of electronic device includes things that are like processing data, something along those lines. So the problem with that is that the earbuds themselves may be an electronic device, and this decision now stands for the proposition that having them in your ear amounts to holding them. Uh -huh. uh, and so now you'd be holding an electronic device in your ear. Um, the Crown did make an alternative argument on this appeal, saying that uh, even if the judge didn't accept the uh, original decision that you were holding them in your ear, uh, she ought to uh, have convicted or ought to have upheld the conviction nonetheless based on an argument about uh, an exception to using an electronic device that involves uh, that permits a single uh, earbud or a single earphone in your ear in some circumstances for phone calls. Yeah, I'm seeing that in 7 sub 1C yeah. of the regulation. Yeah. So 
So she didn't buy the Crown argument in that regard, but uh, I think given that she's upheld the uh, conviction, and this is now a BC Supreme Court decision that would be binding on um, all of the judicial justices that would hear these things in traffic court, yet you now have a decision that stands for the proposition that uh, having something in your ear is holding it. And so if you were to have have wireless earphones in, I think then the case would turn on whether the judicial justice concluded that the wireless earphones were themselves um, electronic devices. Uh, And so I suppose if I was giving advice to somebody, I would say, don't do that. Uh, This legislation is so broadly drafted, you may well find yourself (laughs) in a very unhappy circumstance. So, um, you know, I'm not sure what the takeaway here is other than um, either, uh, you know, lock anything that might possibly be an electronic device in your glove compartment uh, or uh, maybe encourage your uh, MLA to consider uh, uh, revisiting this legislation so that it captures the legitimate concern about people being distracted uh, without necessarily um, convicting people uh, who are engaged in activity that doesn't, on the face of it, appear to be distracting. And the the real crux of it for people is if you get two of these tickets, um, you will be prohibited from driving. Yeah, so That's what serious. will happen to you. And yeah. so, you know... Uh, I think we can all agree people shouldn't be driving down the highway, you know, texting their friend about <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we need to be uh, convicting people or potentially uh, prohibiting them from driving a car uh, because they had uh, earbuds in that they were was attached to an electronic device with a dead battery. It, it just seems like perhaps we've... Uh, We've jumped the shark, and I maybe gone a bit too far. All right, let's take a break. Uh, A little bit late. Sorry about that. Michael Mulligan will continue with Legally Speaking right after this. Back on the air here with CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, as we continue with Legally Speaking. You've got me reading through the Tenhauser case now, saying that the issue with the electronic devices is the position in which the device was held, not necessarily the functions that the device has. And I think that's important for our audience. We've got about four minutes left. What else do we want to cover? Well, I think uh, one other case just to comment on uh, briefly was a court of appeal decision that came out uh, uh, that uh, was just a very disappointing one from the perspective of somebody in the legal profession. Uh, And it was one uh, uh, disappointing in the sense of uh, sort of how the uh, lawyer in this case uh, conducted themselves. It was a case where a a possession of the purpose of trafficking drugs case uh, where a uh, lawyer advised a client that they uh, should uh, plead guilty and would then be able to uh, argue about the uh, uh, appropriateness or the lawfulness of a search warrant that was issued. Uh, you can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Once you plead guilty, that's just not permitted. The lawyer here did a number of other things the Court of Appeal found, including um, not properly advising the client about that, um, sending a double booking themselves, sending a junior person that had been called for only a short uh, period of time to uh, conduct the uh, hearing. Uh, and um, this led to this person um, entering a guilty plea um, when they should not have, therefore foreclosing uh, an argument uh, that uh, they should have uh, made. Uh, another judge had already found this search warrant in question to have been uh, improperly uh, issued. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, uh, this uh, person was uh, convicted and wound up going uh, all the way to the Court of Appeal to have that undone. And so uh, I must say I, I'm sure commenting on it uh, because of my uh, disappointment uh, that somebody would uh, have practiced in that 
uh, fashion. Um, some, some, I think this is sort of worth commenting on, mm-hmm. uh, there are some sort of decisions in the course of a, a criminal case that are genuinely decisions for a client to make. Uh, they would include things like, uh, does the person wish to plead guilty or not guilty? Uh, does the person wish to testify or not? Um, and the way that it uh, should work is much like the way it would work if you went to see your uh, doctor. The, the doctor's uh, task would be to diagnose uh, somebody, tell them what they think they've got, lay out for them what their treatment options would be, and then allow the person to make uh, their own decision about, you know, for example, do you want the surgery, do you want to take the pills, or uh, not do anything at all. Uh, and that, that, in my view, is the appropriate approach to be taken with a, a client when making a decision like, for example, how do you want to plead, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a big decision. is genuinely a decision that uh, a client should be able to make for themselves with proper information being provided to them about the uh, pros and cons and uh, considerations. Uh, and uh, this case uh, sort of demonstrates the uh, peril when that doesn't occur in a proper way. Uh, the lawyer here is also found to have made no notes of any discussions with the client, uh, not shown up in person to, to deal with these things, not reviewed a previous decision that would have uh, had a, a direct impact on the outcome of the case had it been handled appropriately. Uh, and so I, I must say I'm not sure commenting on it because I just found it to be uh, such a disappointing example of how things are not to be done. Uh, and uh, it can have a real uh, impact on people. Uh, this fellow's been uh, dealing with the uh, fallout from this now for several years. Um, you know, it looks like uh, happily the Court of Appeal has finally uh, put it right, uh, but uh, none of that would have been necessary had this fellow gotten uh, proper advice uh, long ago. Indeed. The gravity of any uh, formal process in the judicial system requires that members of the profession conduct themselves to the highest standards at all times. So I'm glad that the public is being made aware that there are processes in place to identify any inadequacies and ensure that they are addressed. We have 20 seconds left. Any final thoughts? Well, I uh, I must say with all of the foibles in our uh, legal system, I feel better every day as I watch the uh, nonsense going on in the U.S. So my, my disappointment reading that case is uh, offset by the... <laughs> smile I have every day knowing that we have, I, I think, uh, well, not a perfect system, probably one of the, the best anywhere in the world. I'm a great admirer of Canada's fiercely independent culture in the judiciary, and I will fight to defend it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day and stay safe. You too. Bye now. Take care.